Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we are joined by Daniel Maybe. Daniel is the Asia Region President of the United Natural Products Alliance. He is also the Director of the UNPA's Market Development Cooperator Program with the U.S. Commerce Department's International Trade Administration, which aims to increase exports of U.S.-made natural health products to China through a new export certification and quality program. The program aims to expand the export of natural health products produced in the United States to China. In our conversation with Daniel, we get valuable insights into the various segments of the nutraceuticals market in China, the cultural factors driving its growth, and the regulatory environment for foreign companies. We discuss effective sales channels and marketing strategies for companies looking to enter the Chinese market. Daniel also predicts continued growth in the nutraceuticals market in China, driven by factors such as the aging population and increasing health awareness. We also talk about the importance of data and analytics in predicting customer behavior to be successful in China. Enjoy. Companies really have to have a strategic plan. They have to know what what SKUs to have in China, fulfill orders. And and so if you don't have any predictive data on that and you're stocking inventory that doesn't match the market, I I mean, obviously, that's not going to be good for, for anyone. And then you have inventory sitting in China. It's going to expire. It's going to be a loss. So I think it has to be data-driven analytics that, that drive sales going forward. The days previously of just working off of prestige of being a foreign brand are over. You really have to now speak directly to the market. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Todd. First things first, where in the world are you today that we are recording you from? I am currently sitting in Beijing, China right now. Okay, awesome. Fond memories of Beijing for sure. Tell us your story. How did you end up in China? It's a little of a convoluted story. Uh, when I was 18, I took a gap year. Uh, I first went to New Zealand, uh, worked, made some money. I first traveled to China, uh, really kind of just explored southwestern China. I went to Tibet. It was really kind of a, an amazing uh, journey for me. I then uh, went back to the U.S., uh, started college. I started learning French, but I wanted to learn a non-Indo-European language, So then I decided to start learning Chinese. And uh, during my uh, sophomore year, actually, I decided to take another uh, break uh, during my studies. And I was just laying in bed one night and I kind of just decided I'm going to go to China and learn Chinese. And I I actually kind of knew it, it was going to change my life, basically. So that's kind of how I ended up here. And now I'm almost 20 years down the road from from that time. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, 
I've also thought about that Indo-Euro kind of language question, right? Everybody, you know, typically learns a lot of French or Spanish. And then I think a lot of the world has turned around to to study uh, Mandarin as well. What was going through your mind way back 20 odd years ago as to what was the kind of the motivators to not want to study what everybody else was studying and do something that, hey, listen, back 20 years ago, that was a different choice. Let's be honest. Not everybody was doing it like they are today. Why Mandarin? You know, it it, it was kind of an intuitive uh, guess about the future that I, I felt, you know, China was, was coming up in the news a lot. And uh, just, um, you know, I, I, I did know some, some Chinese people when I was younger. My brother actually had uh, done an exchange program where he came over to live uh, in Beijing. And then we hosted a Chinese exchange student when I was in middle school, basically. So, you know, it, it, it just was kind of in the back of my head. And, and I thought, you know, learning Chinese will probably be good for my uh, career. And it, it's kind of unique. And back then, there really weren't that many people learning Chinese. So I just went for it. Yeah, I think it speaks a lot to the power of mm. exposure. And there's a lot of guests that I've talked to who were either studying Mandarin because they didn't know what else it was. They kind of fell into it by accident as an elective. Why not? It was different. Or they were taking a gap year or they were on a, on a school trip or they were just doing some sort of uh, sister school swap going over to check it out. But and then that's when it lands or, it, you know, in your case, you even had a student come and say yeah, that was a homestay for your family that also introduced you for all everybody listening realize that that's that's a very powerful thing that exposure uh to and you never know where it can lead you but to a lot of people that i talk to especially on this podcast it's led them to to have a life that's that's a lot different than a lot of other people this podcast we're going to talk a lot about nutraceuticals it's super hot it is something that is really going gangbusters in china right now we're going to talk about this and, and i want you to talk a bit about the rapid growth of the nutraceuticals market in china and what are the key factors that are driving that growth sure so um just a little bit more background so i'm actually from the state of utah where it's really one of the hubs of the nutraceutical natural health product industry. It contributes about $13 billion a year to the state's economy. So I, I, I've been around this industry for quite a period of time. I've uh, been a personal user of uh, dietary supplements and nutraceuticals. And so uh, when looking at the China market, you know, it, it's really just been booming. It, it, it's pretty incredible. Today, it's the second largest market after the US. It's about a $25 billion market uh, growing at about 5% per year right now. During COVID, it was growing a little bit faster. People stocked up during COVID, so they have a lot of inventory at home. But we, we really see it uh, rebounding even to higher growth rates in the future. And then, um, you know, Chinese culture, they've long embraced herbs and botanicals as it's intertwined with uh, traditional Chinese medicine, as well as this uh, kind of perception of eating for health. So I, I think it's really in sync with uh, Chinese culture. And, and right now, for example, uh, botanicals and herbs are the largest segment of the market at about $10 billion, but it, it's actually been growing a little bit slower. Right now, the, the real hot area is sports nutrition. It's growing at about 8.5% per year. 
lots of uh, gyms and sports clubs and, and, you know, people after work are playing a lot of basketball or they have, you know, team sports that, that they're involved with. So, so that's really a booming area as well as just uh, vitamins and minerals also growing uh, very, very quickly. And so um, just two other, you know, quick facets is you have an aging population where uh, people are, are giving gifts uh, and they're, they're gifting nutraceutical products. So, for example, the most uh, popular single SKU uh, for imported products is, is actually Move Free, which is a, uh, a, a product for arthritis, for your joints. And, and so people are gifting this to their parents. And people now today have more income. They're focusing on quality rather than quantity. And, you know, just like in, in North America, people want to look good. They want to stay youthful, marrying later. So, so they want to just kind of, you know, maintain their, their appearance. And, and that's really what's driving the market. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for those of you listening on the audio only, um, your host here has got, got some gray hair coming in. And so like that arthritis stuff that you're talking about being able to move a little freer. Yeah, that's that's definitely stuff on my radar. Uh, now, uh, obviously, Daniel, you're looking pretty, uh, pretty good. You've got lots of hair. It's all the same color. And you're right. I mean, that that vertical is growing. I mean, it's 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 I think it's over 25 billion market cap. I mean, it's still trailing house and home. It's still trailing food and food delivery. It's still trailing, you know, apparel and textiles. But, you know, it's it's probably just on a on a percentage basis, uh, the f- the fastest growing of the groups, uh, even though its market cap is is a lot smaller. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. And it's it's difficult to calculate as well because yeah. um, you you know it, there, there's a lot of uh, overlap between traditional Chinese medicine and dietary supplements and nutritional products, but. There's various ranges out there, but you know maybe a conservative estimate is is about twenty five billion. Uh, let me ask you a very simple question because I was thinking this in the very beginning, and and I always try to put myself in the audience's shoes. Nutraceuticals, kind of a fancy name. What does it actually mean? Is it just nutritious pharmaceuticals? Can I ask you just to quickly explain what nutraceuticals means in layman's terms? Yeah, sure. So, so I think it, it, it's just kind of a category term. Um, you know, the, the official uh, name in terms of the, the regulatory uh, system in the United States is dietary supplements. So it covers dietary supplements. It covers natural health products. Um, there is no official uh, definition of what natural is, actually. But, you know, nutraceuticals really just kind of is, is this overlapping term that, that people use to, to really kind of cover the entire market. Okay. Now you had mentioned that, you know, if we look at Chinese culture, they've grown up on a lot of herbs. We look at, you know, Eastern medicine, it involves a lot of balms and salves and, 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 and teas and, and a lot of things that it's all very nature based. Now it looks different. It's, I think trying to represent similar as far as especially what it treats and how you're going to feel, but is it coming in pill bottles? Is it is it in pill form? And I guess what I'm asking and why I'm talking about this is the consumer appetite, the consumer perception, okay? Like I want to know how have consumer attitudes in China towards nutraceuticals evolved over the years? Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, eight years ago, th- there was pretty low awareness of a lot of the, the popular 
brands in, in North America. Um, a lot of people knew GNC. If, if you ever talked about the natural health product industry, nutraceuticals, people would say, Oh, you know, I, I know GNC because they had storefronts. Um, and, and then, you know, people began to explore, for example, in, in Costco, the Kirkland brand. And, and so they, they began to, to develop their awareness of various brands and product types. But, but it's really been kind of an evolving uh, process. And regarding uh, delivery methods, you know, traditionally, it, it's been uh, tablets and, and capsules. But now today, you know, a lot of people, even in the United States, actually gummies are the most popular delivery form now, believe it or not. And uh, drinks are, are becoming more and more popular. You're seeing a lot of collagen drinks and things of that nature. So, so it really is an evolving market. Um, and, and, and very exciting, actually, for companies that have innovative uh, products, because you never know really what's going to take off here in China until you try. Yeah, I, I've seen some really innovative companies coming out in this space. Uh, you can, I don't know, do something along the lines of a 23andMe, do like a DNA test kind of thing. And then they send you the specific ingredients that are based on your genes or your DNA or your goals or your body size and shape and activity level, whatever. And then they put that all together. But then they also send you like the ice cube tray that is meant for you to make your at-home gummy. And then you make the concoction, you pour it in, and then you let it kind of sit. And now you've got your gummies too. It's pretty cool. They're mixing a lot of different things. It's personalized, individualized. I don't think we can talk about nutraceuticals without immediately talking about something legal, talking about regulations. Can you explain to us a little bit about the regulatory environment for nutraceuticals in China? And if it differs, which I'm assuming that it does, how it differs from other places in the world? Yeah, sure. So the regulatory environment here in China uh, is pretty um, difficult for foreign companies. So China has what's called the Blue Hat registration uh, process. And this is a process that's needed if you're going to do general trade. So that's excluding cross-border e-commerce. If you want to be in retail, in shopping malls here in China... Uh, just to throw a statistic out there. So last year, there were 3,368 approvals and seven went to foreign companies. So that's uh, 0.2%, which, which isn't uh, uh, very great for, for uh, North American companies. And uh, today, you, you know, or ju just to talk a little bit more about this registration process. So if you are to apply for Blue Hat, it you need to first hire a regulatory consultant. The procedure can take three or more years and can cost about $150,000. There's also about 27 approved uh, functional claims. There is an easier, what's called a, a filing system for this Blue Hat registration, which costs about $20,000. But we, we've still seen uh, you know, foreign companies have a very difficult time to be able to receive these uh, registrations. So that's why the Chinese government has set up the cross-border e-commerce system where products are imported into free trade zones and they don't leave the free trade zones until they're purchased by the consumer. And then the consumer pays the, the import duties and taxes, and then it's it shipped out. So that's where you know Tmall uh, Global and JD Worldwide and these various platforms have really uh, seen a booming business in our industry. I can make some assumptions that if the product is being held 
in the FTZ, you know, say in Nanjing or something, and all sales must be e-commerce. Potentially, that is just easier to control or it's easier to measure. Or as a supplier, you have to earn your stripes. You have to earn your way to be able to be freely shelved or have a retail presence. Do you think that it, this is just really also an opportunity for them to learn about your product, how it's affecting people, how it's desired, what the consumption or the, or the, the appetite level is? Are they, are they just taking a lot of care to make sure that things, if they can't go to the factory to see how the, you know, how the sauce is made, then this is, this is just the nature of the beast as it pertains to importing or, uh, you know, for our case, exporting to China? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Because um, as you probably well know, there was a, a system or not a system, but, you know, Chinese overseas students were doing what's called a daigo which is kind of overseas purchasing. And then they were shipping products in individual parcels to friends and families or, or customers here in China. So that's very popular even starting uh, 10 years ago. And, and people, uh, entrepreneurs were, were doing quite well in that. But it, it was very unregulated. And so I, I think that the Chinese government saw that. And they, they established a protocol with which to manage the importation of these products. So today, if you try to ship an individual parcel, you know, from, from Canada or the United States, even to, to my home here, um, it, it will get stopped at customs and, and you'll, you'll never be able to get it unless it goes through the FTZ cross-border e-commerce uh, system. And, and so it is a, a system of management. And at, as you know, uh, there is a annual quota for uh, Chinese consumers to purchase products through this FTZ system. So then they can regulate the uh, quantity of products that people are being able to purchase. So if your mom and dad, let's say they're still in Utah, and they want to send you a care package for Christmas, is it getting through? Does it have to go through an FTZ? And how many months in advance do they need to send that thing? I've I've had a lot of uh, pain points regarding receiving individual <laughs> uh, parcels here here in China. It, it, it's uh, it's crazy actually. Um, even I, I uh, when we were setting up our office here, uh, the president of UMPA, Lauren Israelson, sent over uh, just some memorabilia of, of his achievements that, that we were putting on the walls, and and they were just some papers and and some awards and things like that. And it, it literally took like. Uh, I think about 45 days to get it through uh, customs. And, and these are non-edible uh, products and, and things like that. So if you're going to ship over nutritional supplements, not going through the, the FTZ system, and, and then purchasing these products on the, the e-commerce platforms like Tmall, uh, it, it's basically hopeless. And, and yeah, that, that's just the, the nature of the situation here. Yeah. I mean, you know, one bad apple. Yeah. But that's okay. Obviously, it is working. Obviously, companies are being successful. And for somebody like me, the more difficult it is for everybody else, the more eager I am to figure it out. Because that just, to me, smells like opportunity. So can you share some of your insights into like the most effective sales channels for nutraceuticals in China? And and how significant is e-commerce? And what are some of those key marketing strategies that companies should consider using to be successful there? 
Yeah, so so like we've been talking about, e-commerce really is the only viable pathway to market, just given the regulatory situation. So the, the, the top platforms are Tmall, Douyin, the, the Chinese uh, TikTok, but you have other uh, e-commerce platforms like JD or, or Little Red Book. And I, I think I would really recommend to companies to focus on a select few SKUs that, that you think would do well here in China, don't come to the market, you know, with a vast offering uh, of products because you, you just won't be able to really hone in on, on your messaging. You'll have to be working with influencers to, to really promote these products. And, you know, you really have to have the right marketing partner. I've seen so many uh, companies come into China. They, they were contacted by a, a Chinese, what's termed a, a trade partner, a TP. And um, just culturally uh, working together, ha- have some, some conflicts and uh, just not really get their messaging right and, and fail and, and retreat from the market. So, so we've seen that. But at, at the same time, you know, we've seen very successful companies here that find the right marketing partner, the right trade partner to operate their stores on the e-commerce platforms. And, and really, that's why uh, we see WPIC as, as an essential partner for our program here in China, because you, you really are one of the, the top uh, trade partners here in China. And, and so that's why we've developed a partnership together. So to, to really sum it up, you, you have to find the right marketing and trade partner. That, that, that is of uh, you know, utmost importance. Full disclosure to everybody listening, I don't actually work for WPIC. They are the title sponsor of the podcast, but I don't technically work for WPIC. I think that's an interesting thing just for people who may have tied the two together a lot, not quite uh, as as one might, might think. I wanted to kind of have you tell me just like an overhead of what is UMPA's cooperation with WPIC? Sure. So uh, just to give a little bit of background, uh, UMPA applied for and received what's called a Market Development Cooperative Program grant from the U.S. uh, Department of Commerce International Trade Administration. This is actually the U.S. government's most successful export assistance program. So we're really focused on helping uh, U.S. companies to find the right partners to export products to China. And we uh, came across and were introduced to WPIC about a year ago now. And we, we really meshed very well and, and found that, you know, we, uh, our respective organizations really bring uh, very valuable assets to building a successful program for nutraceutical companies. So WPIC is now an MOU partner of this uh, market development cooperative program uh, with uh, UMPA. So you, what we really uh, value is WPIC's data-driven approach to the China market. And, and this is what other trade partners can't really match because I, I've seen a lot of uh, companies in the US, they, they sign an exclusive agreement with a trade partner here in China. And, and they do, you know, okay, if they, they haven't uh, retreated or, or failed in the market. But I, I think nowadays it is so competitive. There are so many foreign brands all competing in the cross-border e-commerce system and, and all these e-commerce platforms 
that you have to have a, a data-driven approach and you have to have the right influencers and the right live streaming uh, groups to work with to, to really be successful. Otherwise, you're just not going to get any traction. And, and, and that's an unfortunate fact. And I think as well, uh, just having offices both in uh, North America and here in China, it's just such an easier way to communicate with brands. So for example, with our UMK members, uh, we were actually just in Los Angeles at uh, Expo West, which is the largest uh, nutraceutical trade show in, in the world, actually. And, and so we spoke together with WPIC and the U.S. Department of Commerce about this program. And the reception was very, very good. We, we had only standing room for attendees. It, it was packed. And, you know, people just wanted to know the data, just, you know, what what is actually happening in the market. And so that's really what WPIC uh, brings to to this program. And that has been their forte, that and being cutting edge. I mean, I can say this quite honestly, the live streaming campus that they have in Nanjing, as well as that landing spot in the free trade zone, being able to distribute throughout entire Southeast Asia, including China, Japan, from one location. And then to have like that software, I think it's called Descripto, that can basically, you can send it out and it comes back and just brings you all the information you could need about any vertical, any platform, any any mode of shopping, any payment uh, choices that the consumers are making. I mean, it's just incredible what brands wanting to go to China get to learn. I mean, it's it's better information than you might have about your home market. And it's a place that you don't even exist yet. And you might have ha- access to more data about it just through WPIC and what they've been able to do. I'm big fans, obviously, and that's why I do this. As the head of UMPA in China, what role is your organization playing in supporting the growth and the regulation of nutraceutical industry in China? Yeah, so so this also uh, speaks to our cooperation with WPIC. I, I have actually toured their facilities in Nanjing in the free trade zone. And, and what a lot of companies might not know is um, the way the products are being stored and handled, the chain of custody. B- these are all things that are of utmost importance because as you know, we're, we're a U.S.-based uh, trade alliance, uh, we're very familiar with the requirements of the Food Safety Modernization Act. Uh, chain of custody, all these types of things, how you handle and store the products. And what people don't know is a lot of uh, FTZs, they actually don't have climate-controlled warehouses. So you have fish oils sitting in a warehouse, and it's 40 degrees outside, and the fish oils are melting, or the probiotics are getting destroyed, or you know, just basically any product should not be stored at like 35 degrees or even 30 degrees. And, and so... That's really uh, one of the the areas that that we appreciate with WPIC. And then, you know, talking just back about our export certification program that we're developing with the U.S. Department of Commerce is we're we're really looking to enhance consumer confidence and regulatory oversight of supplements by implementing an export certification. So we're implementing product traceability, averse events reporting, and ingredient risk reporting. And this data... Uh, will be shared with our uh, partners like WPIC as well as with uh, regulators. So we'll essentially just build this database. This database will be shared with with the U.S. government as well. And we really want to educate consumers about products, how to read ingredients and labels, how how to understand claims, 
what are the various third party certifications of these products, and that all products uh, that go through this program, they have to meet the standards of the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, the current statute that regulates these products. And actually, the president of uh, UMPA, Lauren Israelson, he actually uh, kind of drafted the, the first version of this uh, statute, and then it was proposed by Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah. Just a little bit of uh, background information. So that, that's really the essence uh, of this uh, program that we're developing. Given your expertise and your experience in this area, I'm going to ask you to get out your crystal ball. Tell us what future trends you predict for the nutraceuticals market in China. I, I think right now the e-commerce platforms are really saturated. There are so many brands uh, competing. So I, I think you're going to see a consolidation of foreign brands here in China. Really, the, the strong will survive here and, and others are, are going to drop out. And then only those working with a- accurate analytics and market data will be able to survive. And then I also think companies that customize products for the China market will also do very well. So for example, in North America, you know, tablet and capsule sizes are, are quite large, actually. And you know, a lot of people here they don't have any problem with that, but a lot of people do have problem with that. So, for example, even my my wife, who's Chinese, she has a hard time just with you know the the regular tablet sizes. And and so I think companies that are innovative that have uh, new gummy or drink based products or other delivery methods will also do well. And then also companies that uh, incorporate aspects of traditional Chinese medicine and and kind of you know have this merging between East and, and West. Uh, in their product offering, I, I think will also tend to do quite well, and also just proving, you know, quality, effectiveness of the products that 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 is also of uh, utmost importance. I think that it's really interesting talking about data and the importance of leaning on data. I know that this is uh, like WPIC has launched this new ninety day is launching this new ninety day accelerator program to help brands get into Asia where they're literally able to access nine countries through the same program, doing the same thing. And this is simply a result. And I'm not trying to put words in anybody's mouth because this is my own my own takeaway, is that when customer purchasing behavior data becomes so good that you can predict what is going to be bought when and where and how much, and that amount of time that you have, that lead time you have on the data outpaces how long it takes you to get products somewhere. That affords an incredible business opportunity to brands who can now consolidate where they need to have product if they have the access to the data, because then they can know when and where they need to have product before the customers actually purchase and demand it and get the product to the place being close to where they already know that it's going to be wanted, needed, purchased, and expected upon delivery. And that is going to make it a lot more efficient from a cost perspective for brands to be able to exist and compete in Asia. What do you think about what I just said? Yeah, absolutely. So with the big promotional events here in China, whether it's Singles Day or June 18th, you know, companies really have to have a strategic plan. They have to know what what SKUs to have in China, fulfill orders. And, and so if you don't have any predictive data on that, 
and you're stocking inventory that doesn't match the market, I, I mean, obviously, that, that's not going to be good for, for anyone. And then you have inventory sitting in China, it's going to expire, it's going to be a loss. So I, I, I think that's like, basically, the message of this uh, recording is that, you know, it has to be data driven analytics that, that drive sales going forward. The days previously of, you know, just working off of kind of a, a prestige of being a foreign brand are, are over. You know, you, you really have to now speak directly to the market, know the market. So I, I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, the access to the information, everybody's on TikTok. Everybody knows uh, what Air Jordans are. It's, it definitely takes more than just uh, being a novelty foreign something, something brand to, to yeah. be there. Um, it's just the, the game has changed yeah. and it's much more difficult to keep up if you don't have access uh, to relevant data. Daniel, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you on the show today. It was just a great conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Todd. It is, is my pleasure. For everybody listening to us on the audio-only version, don't forget we have uh, the video version on the WPIC YouTube channel. And for everybody watching us on YouTube but might need their eyes and ears for other things, please feel free to go download the episode audio-only on the podcast platform of your choice. We're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, everywhere that you get your podcasts, we will be there. For Daniel and for myself, we say thanks very much for listening. See you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.